Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. In the movie Moneyball, the Oakland A's general manager, Billy Bean, whose part is played by Brad Pitt, is having a conversation with a player scout who's an old, crusty, stodgy guy who's been doing the same thing for decades and is complaining to Billy about why the team is all of a sudden deciding to shift directions and how they evaluate talent and, and offer player contracts. Billy's response to him is simple. Adapt or die. That's a philosophy I've come to embrace in the last couple of years as I've opened my eyes to not only what I guess I could say, simply put, is a collective narrative by many of the, the large wealth management firms to push a particular view of things, but also to, as I face reality, that what we're dealing with now, which some things we've experienced in the past, high inflation, geopolitical problems are almost a constant but the way these events are coming together at once, along with all this social divisiveness and a number of other problems we're all facing right now, it is unique. And so to go on and to assume that this is just another part of a business cycle, I think, is, is short-sighted at a minimum and really is, is probably more hopium at the extreme. Regardless, what I've had to change in my business is who I'm listening to. And I've shared before, for those of you who've been listening to this podcast since the beginning, I don't rely on the big wealth management firms anymore. You know, between the ESG agenda that uh, has been spoken of by a couple of my guests to just those who really benefit from promoting this idea that nothing ever changes, I've needed to find better ways and, and different voices in order to really properly serve my clients. Today's guest is the result of a phone call I got about a year ago uh, from a wholesaler that works for a company that represents a number of different smaller fund managers that you just don't read about anywhere. In fact, when I returned his call last summer, he actually laughed and said, in 2017, I tried to get a hold of you and you sent me an email back that said, unsubscribe. <laughs> and so I just said, well, you know, at that point, I didn't really need to listen to you, but I sure do now. At any rate, today's guest, his name is Rodrigo Gordillo. He's the president of and a portfolio manager at Resolve Asset Management Global, which has offices in Toronto, Canada, and the Cayman Islands. He and his partners launched Resolve in 2015 using a quantitatively focused investment methodology that they began developing when they were working as portfolio managers with a couple of different Canadian boutique wealth management firms, Macquarie Private Wealth and Dundee Goodman Private Wealth. Mr. Gordillo has over 15 years of experience in investment management and has co-authored the book, Adaptive Asset Allocation, Dynamic Global Portfolios to Profit in Good Times and Bad. Resolve currently manages over $230 million for investors and clients. So it's my pleasure to welcome today to Upthinking Finance, coming to us from the Cayman Islands, Rodrigo Gordillo with Resolve Asset Management Global. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. One of the things, and I know I asked you if this was okay to talk about, was a little bit about your upbringing because your experiences growing up, I think, from what I gathered when we spoke uh, a few weeks ago, really impacts the way you view the world, particularly economically today. And so I really appreciate you sharing with the listeners, you know, whatever you're comfortable with. <laughs> no, absolutely. Because I think it is important, right? A lot of what we do as adults and, and how we think about money comes from your formative years. And mine were very 
impactful, right? So I was born and raised in Lima, Peru, in South America. And I was very, very lucky in a population that is, you know, a developing nation to be the son of a father who was a math professor. He was also uh, a naval officer for most of his career, a very young naval officer that made it pretty far in the information technology space. So they sent him to Monterey, California, where he did his um, thesis in operations research, which is a lot of what we do now at Resolve is systematic managers. What he used to say that his job was is to answer a question poorly that would otherwise be answered even worse, right? It's about signal to noise and how specific can you get? You can't get really specific. You have to be broadly correct rather than specifically wrong to be able to capture a signal. So it's very much aligned with finance in that regard. But anyway, you know, he was fairly successful when he left the Navy. He started a software development company, made a decent amount of money. I was always surrounded by computers and math. And then um, sadly, in 1989, my father did have all the money in a Peruvian bank account. We also had, my grandfather had recently retired and had written a letter to everybody that as an accountant his whole life, he was grateful that he was able to save and that you know, working hard and saving pays off and that you guys, my kids, you'll never have to worry about me. Sadly, within the next six months, it was a, a period of political turmoil in, in Peru and uh, the president decided to be a more populist president where they were gonna take everything internal, we were gonna produce internally, and we decided to default on the IMF loans. And inflation went from a moderate pace to 7,200% in six months. And of course, the interest rates in the banks did not go up by 7,200%. So whatever you had in savings in Peruvian dollars basically went to zero, including my grandfather's savings. Mm. What was interesting around that time is, as the, as the story goes, that our next door neighbor was about to be evicted because he couldn't afford to pay his, um, his mortgage. Um, the mortgage payments were too high in Peruvian dollars. But after the hyperinflationary period, whatever 400000 imagine a $400,000, I don't even know what, what the um, mortgage was, but imagine a $400,000 local currency. Um, that purchasing power went from $400,000 to $400,000 American dollars to $1 to $400,000 uh, Peruvian currency. So with a couple of U.S. dollars, he was able to pay off a full mortgage. What was interesting about that event, and we never stopped talking about it with our family, is that there are big winners and big losers. And the big winners were the debtors, and the big losers were the savers. And so that was an impactful moment in my life that has followed through throughout my career in making sure that whatever I do, the, the way of investing has to account for a possible period of high inflation. And because, you know, Latin America, you've seen it even for the last 5, 10, 15 years, we see it all the time in different places in Latin America, North American and developed nations haven't seen that until recently. I'm glad we were prepared for it, for sure. You know, it's kind of ironic. The big winners are the debtors and the big losers are the savers. And I mean, so many of us, I mean, it should be the other way around, right? You work hard, you save, you're disciplined, you should be rewarded. And yet that's, that's a whole nother topic I could go off on. So you went down the path, I guess, and, and tell me if this is a fair uh, characterization of quantitative analysis of, as you uh, pursued a, an investment management career. I've had some exposure in my time in this industry to portfolio managers. And it just seems like, and typically with all the big firms that you, you know, we all hear of, but it's pretty much somebody who you know gets an MBA and goes in and settles into a you know a career of of managing equities or you know some kind of a traditional path goes to some big company and then they just 
make bonuses based on their benchmarks, and that's the end of it. The QA guys, you know, at least, again, from my observation, in a retail space, I mean, you know, I go to these conferences all the time with LPL, you know, and you don't really see a lot of exposure to your sector. And maybe it's just because the fees to get in are so high, and it kind of all serves to perpetuate this way of thinking that needs to shift, I believe. How did you find your way down that path? Well, look, it started from first principles. When I say systematic quantitative, all I mean is I've written down some rules. And instead of keeping it in my notebook, me and my team have put it into code to make sure that we are disciplined and we are executing religiously based on our philosophy. The philosophy is what's important here. When I saw what happened to my family, and by the way, after a massive inflationary boom, there's a deflationary bust, inevitably. They're generally side by side. So you, so. Front and center for me was understanding that I needed to protect against inflation, but also protect against bear markets, prolonged multi-year bear markets, and participate in the bull market. So a balance between those three was important. And this went all the way back to Harry Brown and the permanent portfolio. I don't know if you're familiar with him and, and his works, but in the late 80s, he said, look, you know, you need to have uh, 25% of your money in cash, 25 in gold for inflation, 25% in equities for growth, and 25% in treasuries for, for bear markets. And so that's a good initial kind of early man version of what we are, the way we think about balance and portfolio balance today. But we could even go back to the Talmud. There's actually parts of the Talmud that say, you know, for, for investing, you should have a portion of your money in cash, a portion in a business, and a portion in real estate, right? Just to create that balance. And then you have to decide, okay, what does that mean? Is 25% in something like commodities that has 30% volatility, giving them the same amount as bonds that have 5% volatility, is that, is that balanced at all? Are we letting the commodity tail wag the portfolio dog? So then you start thinking, okay, well, maybe there's a way, better way to balance this through risk. So ultimately, the, the path it was about creating balance across multiple regimes and making sure that we have diversity, so global equities, global bonds, global commodities in the portfolio, but also balance, that within those regimes, for me, it's three big buckets, commodities for inflation, equities for bear markets, uh, for bull markets, and treasuries for bear markets, to, have, to make sure that we're constantly measuring risk and updating the risk rather than the dollar weights in order to maintain that, that equal risk contribution across the three. And then you really have the ability of having a three-piston motor where each piston is the right size and weight so that the motor's running smoothly, right? Rather than a 60-40 portfolio, which sadly is, if you put your risk parity goggles on, your 60-40 equity bond is actually 90-10 equity bond risk. So you have a big piston that's kind of moving the car along strongly, and then a small bond piston that's never really offsetting in a balanced way. And that's why you see balanced, so quote unquote, balanced portfolios in bear markets losing a lot of money that when they should be offsetting that. Interesting. And then you codify it, and then you create systems around it. So I, I just thought of a question that occurred to me. You have two partners. I'm just kind of curious because this is a different way of thinking. Can you share just how you guys connected? Because clearly you obviously have sort of similar views. Yeah, it was very unorthodox. Again, I think a lot of my life is very, it's just pure luck. You know, being born to the father that I was born to and being able to migrate to Canada, being taught to be an independent thinker. So I was on my own, building my own business and using these methods, you know, cruise through 08, like, like butter based on these methodologies and then when I met Mike and Adam they moved they moved over from another firm the night they moved over they went to the Christmas party I went to them that we were just kind of talking to each other Adam comes up to me and says uh, hey how you doing you know uh, what do you do and I said well it's a little complicated why don't you come to my office and I can explain it to you tomorrow and he looked at me straight in the eyes and said 
well, why don't you try me? And that night, you know, we always say that in a room full of horses, you know who the zebras are? The zebras are Mike and Adam. And we spent the rest of the night till 4 a.m. talking about it. I'd never met an advisor group that was thinking the way I did. And of course, the third component that I didn't talk about is that an important component when equities, bonds, and commodities go down together, like kind of we're seeing right now, is to be able to short, right? So all of these concepts together is very rare, was very rare. And Mike and Adam had already built out their own systems using that over the last few years. They did struggle through 08. And that was the catalyst to say, we, we need to do something better. And they mm. kind of, when you start looking at reality and diversity and balance, you come to the same conclusion. We all ended up in the same spot independently. And then we partnered up and immediately, like the next day, I, we moved next to each other. That must have been exciting for you because I tell you what, I've kind of was a zebra, but was willing to adapt to, what did you call it? The What were the other group, the horses or the donkeys? And, I don't and, know, and whatever. A room full of horses, you know who the zebras okay. are. So I, I was, I've always been a zebra in life, but yeah, you know, I guess I kind of adjusted to the horses because it seemed like for the while that was all working, but it's a pretty lonely industry at my level. I mean, I've tried to have conversations with people and, you know, most guys, their revenue streams are, are still coming in, you know? And so if, you know, it's kind of the why, why, but why, you know, change things if it's all working thing. But I'm grateful that I've run into guys like Alex Craner and Monaco and, and you and others, even though, you know, you're up kind of at the PM level up here and I'm the, I'm the guy down here. Um, it's just comforting, you know, it's reassuring to know that there's other people who see things and aren't afraid to, to literally, you know, make a shift like you guys did. By the way, it's not easy. It wasn't an easy career. It has not been an easy career to be very different. I can imagine. I mean, I've, you know, I've asked Alex, how well is this trend following? Because the shorting is it opened up a whole new world for me. You know, it was always the same, you know, I'm sure, you know, well, just ride it out, just ride it out. And um, yeah, that's great if you've got 20 years, but what if things shift all of a sudden like they have, you know, and the ability to take the other side of the market is just fantastic. Yeah, he always says, you know, the, the strategy isn't well received. You know, people think, oh, yeah, that's great, but they don't really want to act on anything. So one of the things I opened up with was this idea, and I guess this kind of leads to maybe more specifics on uh, from you as in terms of how you manage money, what you guys are doing now, is that there's this perpetuated idea that, you know, this is just another part of the business cycle. And the more I've sought independent views that aren't vested in that kind of a perspective, the more I'm realizing that if you're looking at things like that, either you just aren't seeing what's going on or you just don't want to or not willing to. And so... Maybe speak to that a little bit if you can. You know, it's totally natural. Again, it's, I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast how much my formative years informed where I wanted to shine a light on, right? And the reality for developed markets and advisors within those developed markets and investors within those developed markets is for the last 40 years, they've kind of been like the turkey, right? They've been fed by their masters a certain food every single day. Every single day that the turkey eats that meal, it feels like their master is uh, more caring and more loving than, than ever before with more statistical significance every day that passes. And if that's your life, then you cozy up to that lifestyle fairly easily because you know nothing else. That's been your lived experience. Of course, until the day before Thanksgiving when <laughs> you got your head chopped off, right? And so the problem with not... I always talk about like what's it's not conflate experience with expertise. And I think experience has been 40 years of this market, this market of disinflationary growth, right? Low inflation, persistent positive growth and abundant liquidity. 
is a flash in time. It is not common. It is not the norm. To not have to deal with inflation for 40 years, with the exception of a few years in the mid-naughts, is highly unorthodox if you have the experience to look at history and understand it. So the expertise to look at history and understand it. People just have the experience, vast majority of them, where they're constantly coming back and saying, for example, this year I hear a lot of people saying, look, I can't wait for the markets to get back to normal. And me saying, that's the last 40 years have not been normal. This is normal. Having to, having to deal with inflation is a normal thing. And the repercussions that come from it, we can look back at history or we can just intuit and we'll know what the, what the knock-on effects will be of inflation volatility. But you never had to think about it because in your experience, inflation goes back down to two and we're done, right? We're not. I mean, this is not common. And I don't know what the future lies, but I know what the past has done. I can show you a chart just to put some things into perspective. So this is a chart I've been using from the beginning of my career just to kind of help people go beyond their personal experience to understanding that um, markets are a little bit more complex than what we've felt. So, so this is the 60-40 portfolio from 1900 to 2016. I do need to update it. The point of this chart is to show that the investment lifespan of most people right now are you know, probably 40 years old, right? So what we've experienced has been this disinflationary growth 75% of the time. Now, there was a rough patch there in the mid-2000s, but again, inflation was a, was a moderate risk here, right? It wasn't that big of an impact. This is more you know, growth, low growth environment. And with that, the Fed just needed to like print some money because money printed didn't lead to inflation. It just led to economic growth and economic growth, and especially financial economic growth. And, uh, and it was really easy to beat absolutely everybody, right? If you're a passive 60-40 portfolio of 10 basis points, why would you do anything differently? Well, you do diff things differently because prior to 1981, the truth was that the dominant regimes were regimes dealing with inflation or deflation, not disinflation and growth. And if you're not aware of that, you can go through a decade or two of flat performance to negative performance and if you are a retiree or looking to retire and you're getting no real returns in your portfolio when you're withdrawing money, then you can get whatever plan you had for 20 years of retirement can be gone in seven years if you don't moderate it and you don't improve your results. And so there's an imbalance in the traditional portfolio that just includes equities and bonds. I've heard since the beginning of my career, I've been trying to remedy that. It's gotten too easy to just rely on the same old approach to things. Here's maybe something you could explain to people. Go back to 2000, and I remember that. You know, you had all this, the dot-com blew up, and then you had 9-11 mixed in the middle of all that, and then, then the war started and things started to turn around. But there was also, there was room to keep lowering, lowering rates. And so, I mean, I used to have clients ask me, you know, well, what about the debt? You know, and I just, it was like, well, you know, what about it? <laughs> You know, I mean, it was kind of like this thing back here. But maybe can you explain how we've kind of come to this point now? I mean, I know there's a lot of geopolitical stuff that goes on, but just purely kind of getting back to what you said. I mean, at some point, you know, we've all been saying, that, you know, you can't keep printing money forever. Can you maybe elaborate on that? It's, of course, a complicated topic because depending if you're a country that can print its own money, if you're the reserve currency, you're going to have a different experience than some place like Peru who is independent on international trade, has to keep their currency in check. You know, we've, we've lived a few 
high prints in printing money that immediately lead to inflation because the world doesn't care about the Peruvian sol, right? They, they care about the U.S. dollar, right? And so the faith of the U.S. dollar, as long as it's kept by some sort of um, either political power, military power, or narrative yeah, that um, the pipes that have been built for decades, they will have an opportunity to print as much as they want and you know, eventually forgive themselves and, and be done with it as long as the faith in the U.S. dollar continues. And that's a big if, right? So I'm not sure I can say that there's any eminent risk that you know, the U.S. Um, economy and the amount of debt that it has is going to be much of an effect. But certainly over time it will. And the geopolitical actions that we're seeing today where Russia thinks they have reserve currencies in their account and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they break this kind of unspoken clause that everything's fair game except for what the world runs on, which is a U.S. dollar currency as a reserve currency that you can use for trade. When that goes away, all of a sudden, you know, Russia, China... Saudi Arabia and other nations are going to have a strong second look at trade measures and, and decide what they want, what currency they want to trade in, right? And the moment that that starts to happen, all of a sudden, you know, debt becomes a real problem. It can become a real problem. Certainly, what we've seen in the last two, two and a half years, the major difference has not been the money printing, right? Because the money printing went into financial assets and actually led to the wealth effect and, and it filtered into areas that were useful for the Fed. The problem with the last two years was that over-reliance on fiscal spending, money in people's pockets. They've identified that that's the right combination, a little bit of money printing and a little bit of money in people's pockets to lead to uh, economic spending. That's unfortunately, the spending went way above the production capability of the world, right? So over the last couple of years, we've averaged 20% excess spend in goods and services where the economy is running at four or five, right? as its ability to satiate that demand. And that's where true inflation comes from. It was, it was printing of money that went into people's pockets rather than printing of money that went into buying bonds and then went into equities. Two separate things. So what you end up with right now is the Fed having to have that dual mandate of raising rates enough where you can have a reduction in inflation but not cause a massive recession. And this is the problem, right? Like you raise rates... This is when debt becomes a problem because Latin American debt, anybody who's not part of the reserve currency or has dollar-denominated debt but, but gets cash flows in their local currency, they're going to start struggling. And that debt's going to be either restructured or defaulted. And even the U.S. government itself is going to have to pay higher interest rates on their own debt, right? So it starts to get hairy here. And there's going to be pressures on the Fed to maybe pivot before it's fixed the inflation problem. So this is kind of back to the 70s. And then you have to, you know, you print money in order to get out of recession and get out of people's problem, uh, get people out of the problems, and then you're dealing with inflation again, right? So I'm not saying this is exactly how it's going to go, but this is how it's gone endless times in history. And it is a high possibility that we are in this kind of inflation volatility cycle of inflation, disinflation, not going to 2% again, going back up to, to 8, going back down to 4 and for a while until we find a, a solution that's a, that's a little bit of pain in every respect, right? I mean, I'm not an expert, but it just, you know, I've always equated situations like this to somebody trying to walk along the blade of a knife. And as soon as the wind blows, you know, they're going to fall off one way or the other. 
So, well, that kind of brings us, at least me, to why I've been looking at managers in firms like Grizzle because of the fact that you approach things differently. And so one thing you explained to me on our call that I think would be really interesting for the listeners is this idea of risk stacking. Of return stacking. Return stacking. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, return stacking. But that risk stacking comes with it. It's an important point to discuss, right? This is the age-old dilemma. And I think it's the main reason why advisors have a hard time diversifying away from equities. And it's because diversification means you're zigging when everything else is zagging, right? Yes. You reminded me of a story. This was in the late 90s and I had a guy come in and showed me his portfolio and it's pretty much like all of them were back in those days, just loaded with all sorts of dot-com, you know, everything, tech, whatever there was, all technology all the time. And I suggested to him, you know, that maybe he'd shift some money out into like, you know, some fixed income or just something just, again, you know, the old way of mitigating risk, add money in bonds. And I'll never forget his response. He just looked at me and said, why would I move money to something that's going to pay me 6% when I can get 20% over here? You know what I mean? As if this was just, and I, anyway. It was a guarantee that he was going to get 20% yep. of the time. That he yeah. In Canada where I grew up, there are no ski companies and there are no bike companies. A ski company would make money every year by selling skis in the winter and then kind of keeping cash flows uh, bleed low in the summer. At the end of the year, you'd make money. And the same thing for bike companies. But of course, it makes more sense to own a ski and a bike company. So in Canada, there's only ski and bike companies, hmm. right? This is the, the idea of diversification. And the problem with most people is that when they see this green line go up like this, when this blue line is flattening, they're saying, why are you taking returns away from me? Now, the dark blue line here is the volatility of cash flows, right? This is a, this is the concept of diversity. Sadly, the problem with this diversity is that, uh, this type of diversity is that it, the, when volatility goes lower, Oftentimes, in, especially in these periods like here, right here, this blue, light blue line is dragging returns lower. And when, you are, when your benchmark is the equity market and, you, and your diversity is causing you to momentarily underperform, you get fired, right? And so this is the problem. I'm going to stop sharing here. I'm going to kind of get into the idea of the issues with advisors' um, portfolios is that when you have a diversifier or a strategy like ours that is got zero or very low correlation equities and bonds, what we're asking you to do historically is to say, look, take away some of your equities and give us some of that space in your, some of that portfolio real estate so that we can be zigging when everything else is zagging. And what that does is it creates a better risk adjusted return. What do I mean by that? For every unit of risk you take, I'm now giving you more units of return. By adding that diversity, I'm lowering volatility and smoothing out the return streams over long periods of time. But from an absolute basis, your returns overall for your portfolio in a massive equity bull market are gonna be lower by definition because I'm zagging when the equity markets are zigging. And so that's been the biggest pain point for advisors for years. So think about now the average risk adjusted return for equities long-term is 0.3. So for every unit of risk you take in equities, Historically, you've achieved 0.3 units of return. Now, equities run at, let's say U.S. equities run at 15% volatility. So you get 5% real return, right? Real return, long-term. And by the way, this it, roughly, bonds are the same way. They're around 0.3 units of risk for, in, in real terms. So long-term, bonds also offer 
for if you match the same volatility, like the 30 year treasury runs at 15% volatility, it has historically offered around 5% real returns, right? How far historically though? Because you mentioned it, which is- 1926. Okay, so this yeah. is going beyond the last, yeah. you know, okay, got That's it. right. Four In years. any given 10 year period, bonds might have a higher risk adjusted return than equities and bonds, but historically, okay. you're roughly getting the same. And the same thing goes for a commodity basket around 0.3 as well, right? So they all, we get to the same place. I think I have a chart for that, actually, so I can- I was going to say, I'd like to see that. That's an interesting point. So this is, for example, a chart with U.S. government bonds, commodities, global equities, and gold from 1970 to today. Now, would you have expected that commodities would be the best performing asset class in that 50-year period? No, particularly because if you look at the last, you know, whatever it is, 10 to 15 years, it's been flat to down. Exactly. Right. But so the point I'm trying to make is that over long periods of time, it seems that every one of these asset classes has the same risk adjusted return. The line that we as investors have decided to focus on is that black line there, that global equity. I mean, for all intents and purposes, they end in the same spot. They all made the same amount of money, right? For 50 years. The question is, do you want to take the rugged path, the, the, the volatile path of multiple drawdowns or you want to combine all these and be more thoughtful about it. This is highlighting the same asset classes, but I'm highlighting the periods of pain of gold, the periods of pain for commodities, the periods of pain for equities and U.S. government bonds. This goes back to our ski and bike example. They don't struggle at the same time, do they? Interesting. No. Yeah. And so the question is, why do we not put these all together in a thoughtful way like this, right? And this last chart is just putting them all together. And the only thing we're doing here is every month we're updating the weightings so that each asset class contributes the same amount of risk. So we're keeping the risk balance. And so the reason we don't do this is because that blue line oftentimes underperforms the bull markets and equities. And that's just a tough thing to hold on to. Okay. Now, how do you remedy that? You remedy that by using derivatives or leverage. Because what happens when you put these things together is your volatility goes from 15, then you add a commodities, which brings your volatility down to 13. You add bonds, it brings your volatility down to eight. And you add gold, it brings your volatility down to six. Now you have a 6% standard deviation portfolio. So just so I'm getting this right, in addition to the, the asset class stacking that you explained, you're also strategy stacking? That's right. Okay. Because that portfolio I just showed you fills in most of the major blind spots, a big muscle movements, right? Commodities for inflation, bonds for deflation, equities for growth. But we still have liquidity issues sometimes where when liquidity dries up, and we saw this in October of 08, bonds, gold, equities, treasuries, everything went down together for about a week. And that's a big drop down. Diversification goes away, right? And the same thing happened in the, in the midweek of, of the COVID crisis in March uh, 2020. And so there are, there are blind spots that even the most diverse long-only portfolio will struggle. The good news is that there is these managers available that can short and can go long volatility and can do these wonderful things that are non-correlated to these long-only components of the portfolio. And so if you can stack a long-short strategy, like managed future seems to be the least correlated to all the traditional asset classes, then that will provide the last bastion of support, right? So a risk parity portfolio this year for the first three months was kind of doing okay. But then 
commodities, equities, and bonds all lost money together in the last couple of months. The only thing that can help you there is shorting, right? So if you go to returnstacking.live, you'll be able to see the impact of 60-40 versus 60-40 plus the long short stack. That's a good website. That's a good link. In fact, I'm also going to mention the um, link to that, that essay you wrote, which is also very, very good. The paper is in there. If you go to returnstacking.live, the paper's on the right-hand side and you can download it there as well. Yeah, that's yeah. exceptional. So here's a thought. If the goal is to ultimately get to the end of the road with the smoothest ride possible, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how many clients will come in and say this and laugh, you know, you know, I'd like the best return with the least amount of risk. Laughing is that, you know, knowing that that's not possible, but at the same time, there's a little bit of hope, right? And so, but then I look at, and I'm thinking of a big management firm up in LA, who I'll remain nameless, that offers kind of the standard suite of options. And I'm, well, let me say, explain it this way. As I've begun my, my search and my, my, you know, awakening here after 30 years in this business to start seeing things differently, there's two relatively sizable fund companies that even offer a pure commodities fund based on, you know, futures contracts and not just oil component made up of, of stock, right? Because that's just another stock fund. I've, I've sifted through that. But why is it that these companies don't offer a commodities fund as a part of this, their, their suite for this exact reason? I mean, is the research too expensive? I mean, I'm just curious your opinion on that. No, the, the issue with commodities is that Commodity, I talked about how commodities over 100 years has a return to risk ratio that's positive, 0.3. The problem with that is that commodities tend to cluster their outsized returns, particularly in periods like today. And so you spend the vast majority of your time suffering. In fact, let me share this quick snapshot of a report from um, AHL. So this is kind of the summary. And what they did is they went to back to 1926 and identified how often we were in inflationary regimes. And they identified that from 1926 to last year, we've been in inflationary periods 19% of the time. In other stuff, 81% of the time. And indeed, when we're in an inflationary regime, industrials, precious, agri-sauce, livestock, energies, gold, and silver, all acted to offset inflation, more than offset inflation, I should provide a nice ballast and offset to your traditional asset classes. The problem is that the other 81% of the time, if you have a strategic holding to commodities, you have a negative carry, right? So while intellectually and academically, having commodities in your portfolio makes sense, it's, it's unsellable, right? So it's really tough to, to, for a retail investor to look at their portfolio from 2011, February 2011 peak, to I think like 2019 was the bottom, yep. maybe even 2020, and seeing a 75% drawdown in that, and you're re-upping, you're always rebalancing back into it, right? So the, the solution to that is not to offer a straight line item, but the solution is to, in my view, is to embed it into a fund product or like a, a commingled multi-asset fund that includes the commodities, but nobody's seeing the pain. They're just seeing the final result, which is yeah. a smoother skis and bikes type of line. You know, I listen to this and it seems to me that part of the missing part, you know, a variable in here or the weak link in this really is the advisor, because you have to be able to explain to the client what you just said. I actually was thinking about a client. I made a recommendation that included a pure, you know, commodities index type of deal. 
And his response, he came right back to me in, in, with the 10 year history, <laughs> you know, well, why am I doing, you know, exactly that. But, you know, I'm not trying to sound like I'm some great guy, but because I put some time into this now, I was able to explain the whys. And then, you know, that's all it took was just one extra step. I had a guy actually with a different company that specializes in energy. And I asked him why more people didn't use their products. And he just said, because it's, it takes advisors too much time to have to explain why the S&P is doing this and this sector's, you know. And so I get it. It's almost like the decision's removed, but... It's true. It's 100% true. I think the issue here is people, again, two words that are conflated is complexity. Too complex. But what they're missing is that it's not complex. It's robust, <laughs> right? Complexity is you are creating unnecessary levers or you're, you're adding unnecessary levers that are going to lead to a blow up of some sort because we don't know what, what the heck's going on. We know exactly what's going on. We understand how the economic machine works and how to create better balance. So it's not that it's a highly complex system. It is more complex than the 60-40 portfolio, but don't confuse complexity with robustness. What you're getting by adding commodities, what you're getting by adding a long short manager and, and long short managers that may have long volatility strategies, what you're getting is robustness, not complexity. And robustness requires some education. You know, creating a more than the two lever portfolio requires you to spend time with your investors. And, you know, I always... When I started in the business, I did have a, a legacy private wealth book and my deal was... You got one shot to complain. You got one shot. If you complain once because we're not like whatever market you want, I'll remind you why we're doing this and what the long-term plans are. And then if you don't, if you complain again, I'll have to send you to another advisor that's more suited to what your emotions are. And I did that. And then, so I, I curated a very unique group of individuals that to the day I cannot fire. It just, they, you know, took the red pill, whatever, yeah. whatever we want to <laughs> call it. But, it required a lot of, you know, it's tough to fire people. It's tough to see people go away when you're trying to accumulate a book of business. But it's absolutely necessary if you as an advisor that, ha that are forward thinking want to remain sane and want to be able to look at yourself in the mirror in a period like this when equities and bonds are down together and, and, and commodities are up 140% and say, I want to be able to look at myself in the mirror during these periods and not have to be like, well, what am I doing except for what everybody else is doing for my fee? Your fee requires you to educate, I think. And I really appreciate that because you and I have a similar view of things. I'm kind of an all-in guy. And, you know, I'll get people that will call me, well, what's your minimum? I don't have minimums. I have my requirement is that people just buy into the philosophy, which includes what we're talking about here. I've just got a great client base. And I think part of that is really lends to periods like this because if you don't have mutual trust and respect and the ability to really have people that are going to listen that aren't chasing performance. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes along with that. Yeah, it can be a real headache. And I got to tell you, um, Rodrigo, you know, you're just, you're, you guys are another step in, in what's been a real positive trajectory for me and how I'm viewing my clients and working with them. I'm, I'm really grateful for it because, you know, as bad as and uncertain as things seem like they are right now in the world, I mean, it's just, it, I don't know if there's anything that's really that calm. I mean, you know, it's, it's really trying out hard to find solace in, in anything that's going on anymore. Um, yet, I'm way more at peace than I ever was in the last, you know, the, the different periods of, of, that I've been through in my career. So, no, I appreciate this. Yeah, it's nice to be positive for a year, right? Like, or in a year like this. I, I lived through it as well in 08. 
I mean, I, what you want to strive for, and I know it's difficult, and I, it's, it was even difficult for me, at the end of the day, there is some, for the vast majority of investors, you're going to have to give them something of what they want. Because part of it is, is understanding the human nature and the stick to itness that they have, right? And so I totally understand advisors that, that say, look, I'm not going to do more than 20% of this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to overweight equities. Because clients, our job is also to keep them invested, right? So maybe they're better off taking a bit more volatility and pain. But if you ever are able to muster and move your business to a balanced portfolio that includes equities, commodities, bonds, and long, short assets, I mean, there's nothing better in the world than to be in a year like this and be positive and, and where your clients are high-fiving you, right? And where, where the advisor value shifts from my 1%, my advisor alpha is specifically in these pairs where we can hold your hand and make sure you don't give up at the wrong time. It shifts from that to... I'm, I'm going to try to make you money every year, regardless of market or economic regime. And it's not that complicated that to do that. It doesn't, it just requires a little bit of thoughtful diversity. You don't even have to be that complex. No, that's great. So I could talk to you for hours. I know you got, you got stuff to do. Um, last thing I'm just interesting because you're definitely one of the smarter guys I've had a chance to speak with. Um, and I've talked to some pretty smart people. Is there anybody in particular you follow, you know, in the economic world or resources you rely on that you're comfortable sharing? I think, and we're lucky that they're starting to be more and more public about it, but you know, one of my virtual mentors was Ray Dalio from Bridgewater. If you read their materials that you can find online all the way back to 2000, I mean, they are a powerhouse in understanding and trying to push forward the idea that diversity is an explicit recognition of our ignorance and that the reason that you allocate to these asset classes is not because you know the future, it's because you don't. And you want to start with what I call the, the Hippocratic Oath of Portfolios. First, do no harm. You want to start with the balance. And then you start with, okay, well, I have an inkling. I think that you know, I can tilt more to equities this quarter because of XYZ. So I think anything, anything from Bridgewater, you know, Dan Jensen has done a couple of interviews recently that are 100% must-watch on YouTube. Just put in Bridgewater, Dan Jensen, or... Prince is the other co-CIO, and there's a lady that is a head strategist there. I can't remember her name right now, but everything that's come out of their mouth in the last two years is just, it's kind of the same thing. They're not there to really give up too much, like, this is, you should buy IBM or Tesla or whatever. It's more constantly pounding the table on diversity and balance, global diversity and balance, and then giving some opinions about what it looks like to live in an inflationary regime and what, how you need to think about things and the, and the key, the key part that the ability to short is going to play in a decade of inflation volatility, which is what they think. And I think to, that they're, they're going to be right about that. Inflation, deflation, ability to go long commodities and short commodities. Like that's going to be important. Well, I appreciate the time. This has been a great conversation, Rodrigo. And um, just thank you for, for joining me today on Upthinking Finance. It was a pleasure. Anytime. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with 
or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.